0: Hi, it's Paul Tizard. Welcome to the Lovefly podcast. And today I'm joined by Fred Finn, who is the world's most travelled person. Welcome, Fred so the Guinness World Record Holder, the world's most travelled person. Will that record ever be broken?
1: I guess all records are meant to be broken. I'm pretty sure the Concorde one will never be broken now because it's never going to fly again. But mileage record, well, I have got an American competitor. Quite interesting to know. He's a guy called Tom Stuka. I met him in that two thousand fourteen, we did a program together on NBC Today Show. At that point in time, he'd flown thirteen million miles, all on United Airlines. As it went on, he said he didn't mind being number two, and we were quite friendly. And then all of a sudden, Guinness told me I have a competitor. And uh, Guinness Book of Records, and I said, "Yeah, I said, is he called Tom? Oh yeah, that's it. We refused him because he wasn't. You're the benchmark, and." What he's claiming is not mathematically possible. He went from 13 million miles to 17, from 2014 to 2017, and then from 17 to 20, by 2017 to 2020, in three years. So he flew from 13 to 20 million, 7 million miles in six years, which you can't fly 36 hours in a day. I think he wants your crown, basically. It is welcome to it, but I mean to lie to get it is ridiculous and and the one thing that bothers him, I have this card. Fred Finn, Million Miler. So I was the first Million Miler on United Airlines, which even more ticks him off, you know. So, it's the way it is. It's a shame. He never gets any worldwide publicity at all. He, he gets a captain or a, somebody to meet him, or some officer from United, I've done another Million Miles. And you know they asked me about it, United, because I launched some some seats for them three years ago. Well, Tom was there. had Tom on a flight. I said good luck. I said, but he doesn't fly actual miles. You know, it, it's impossible. Anyway, I'll read you a little something. I just got it. I just I just flew the other day. I threw out my little logbook, You see, here it is. One ca- captain signed it two flights ago, and he said. Well, Freddy said, it's not very often you fly with someone who's done more miles than the entire crew. And another guy wrote and said, as a professional airline captain, I would only equate to half your hours by the time I retire. And the guy who I just flew with about a week ago, definitely it's a great pleasure to have you as a valid client. You're on board with us today. I'm proud to have the 1,200 nautical miles to your score taking on this, this PS-1-1, that's United, uh, Ukraine International, uh, from Kiev to London. What an immense distance you've covered so far. Just a rough calculation tells me you're more than 700 times around the globe. While I was reading your notebook, I caught myself thinking that it's like reading a history book of, book of one famous and great man. And to my surprise, I found on one of your note pages that I flew with you on the 13th of August 2015 to Munich. Hopefully we'll fly together in the future again. I sincerely wish you to stay healthy and your record to remain unbroken. Captain Roman Suryuk. And I get that from, you know, one I Guys, thank you for paying my wages and stuff like this. You know, it's, it's, it's quite fun. It's not something I went after to break any records. It just happened because I was at work. And, and now I'm travelling. When Euro 212 was on, for example, I was the ambassador for the... Euro 212 football, I was the only English guy for Euro 212 in Ukraine, along with Vitaly Klitschko, the, the world champion boxer. I, worked, I did that, and I was asked to fly on Ukraine International, which is a super little airline. I did the inaugural from Ukraine to New York. The service is good, the guys are friendly, and the, and the food is good. you know. And, and, and I, I did a, a thing on television to the new joining flight attendants, and what it was like to be a flight attendant. And I said, it's, it's, if you can imagine, you're in turbulence, you've got the coffee pot in one hand, the oxygen mask come down, and you've got a baby falling out the seat, and if you can handle that and smile, you, that's what flight attendants do. And last time I flew to, to Ukraine, two of the girls came up to me, of course they're all masked, said, you know, we were in your class on television six years ago. Uh, or even longer, and uh, they said, we'll look after you, you're our hero, you know, so i have the greatest flight, <laughs> and I usually find that, yes, people know that I'm on the flight, etc., but I'm called Fred. I'm, I'm Fred to everybody, the little guy that I'm in Kenya, who washes my shirts, says, can I come and talk to you? Of course, he wants to talk to me about flying and how it is to travel, and I talk to him the same as I talk to the president of the airline, the country, because I talk to people. I don't talk down to people, I don't talk up to people, I talk with people. And I found that it gets me through life. And I I work hard and I play hard, and and I've got a beautiful young wife who doesn't want to be married to some old guy. Basically, I just enjoy what I do with a massive passing. I do inspirational talks to airlines, Marriott, hospitality, service industries about Customer service is an attitude, not a bloody department. And if you're in the service of business, as you well know, Paul, it's not a nine to five job. And if I can get those two messages over, then I tell everybody at the end of this, you're going to ask me two questions before you get out of the room because then I know you've listened. But these are usually 45-minute interviews about talking about aviation and stuff like that. And they go on for two or three hours because people are interested in asking me questions. I do talks on ships about flying. I used to do the Concorde lectures on the QE2, because one way you went Concorde and one way you went QE2, about kinetic friction. And people wondered what it was. Well, when you travel through the sound barrier, the heat on the skin is about 100 degrees, on the nose 125, and the whole thing expands about 11 inches. When you go through the sound barrier, you're piercing atoms and it, it causes a heat. And I, I got called to the captain's office one morning and, and I said Mr Finn, w- what are you doing? We, we've got a problem with you and he's very strict and then he winked at me. He said the problem is, he said, you're only booked to two, two lectures of 45 minutes and people can't get in. So would you mind doing the whole whole week? I said no, no, probably he said you can sit at my table for that. On that particular cruise, I was on the bridge when Concord and the Red Arrows came and that's an iconic picture. I had a Red Arrow Tim Miller who you may know, he became Chief Pilot of Virgin for Airbus and that was the Red Arrows guy and I had David Leaney from Concorde in the other ear and on on a microphone I was telling the passengers what was going on. And Tim Miller, I, I was an honorary Red Arrow and I took Richard Branson to fly with the Red Arrows and the guy that flew him was Squadron Leader Tim Miller and later, Tim went to Air 2000, and he wrote to me and said, "Look, I'd like to fly Richard again. Here's my CV. Can you help?" And I posted it off to the uh, MD Roy Gardner at the time. And Tim, I later learned, became the chief pilot for Virgin. So, and of course, the other guys that flew me, Dominic and and uh, the other guy, they they were they were Red Arrows, flying captains of Virgin Atlantic. Yeah. Dominic came with me on, I did my 10 millionth mile flight on Virgin Atlantic. And because Dominic flew me on uh, Red Arrows and I took Richard up to fly, because he said, can't you bring some of your celebrity friends up? So I I said, Richard, do you want to go fly with the Red Arrows? And he said, yes. And I picked him up from his home in in Kensington Gardens. And uh, we were supposed to get up to Scampton at 10 o'clock at night. You know, we were actually staying with the pilot, but Richard had some music award, and we didn't leave till nine. And and all the time we're going on the way up there, he's on my bloody mobile phone because he's months up to New York all the way up, so we didn't go out and they didn't get the opportunity to do what they normally do. They usually fill you up with pale ale. The night before you go flying, but the the experience is is amazing, and then Dominic moved over to F four Phantom. And I was asked again, would I like to fly the last flight of the Phantom Jet? Yes, and who would you like to bring? So I took David Gower, because he got banned from the England test captaincy for flying around Melbourne in in a Tiger Moth, which is the first aircraft I ever flew in. And then Ron Dennis, who runs McLaren, because I thought he might like to see some real speed. And I had just driven in the, the British Grand Prix warm-up race two days before and I said, Ron, are you coming or not? And he thought I was BSing Yeah, and he said, yeah, yeah, okay, well, we'll fly up in the McLaren jet then. Said, Fine, I'll have to get your permission to land at the military airport. I think we'll, we'll get it. And he still thought we were there until we took off and landed at Wattisham. We had the last Phantom Rolls-Royce which took us out to the last Phantom to fly so we had a good time, and that was quite, I mean, that thing climbed straight up at 18,000 feet a minute. I wrote for Ron Dennis a piece, that how could something so good be uh, in in obsolete? And then they tried to save one for the Heritage flight. But because it was an American uh, fleet fleet plane, the Americans had a lot of say over how it went. So they, they, they wanted the aircraft with no reheats on it. Well, that wouldn't take off very well without that. And then they wanted wires attached across the runway because it was a a fleet air arm, a a carrier-based crew. And after two years of going on, this went on for two years, and and, and Dominic was going to be his pilot uh, for for McLaren. And it was all set up with Peter Harding, the chief of the defence force, and I was at the dinner that night, and I think there was an RAF guy with a dog every 100 metres or every 100 yards, and, and and there was nobody below group captain at that dinner. And I think there's only three civilians, and that was us. And uh, these these are things that have come to me because of flying.
0: Fred, these are great stories. So, who's been the most interesting person you've ever met?
1: Oh, have you got about 10 hours? Because there's a lot of them. It's amazing people, of course. I mean, I helped Richard Branson. I, I, got, off the, I got off Concord one night. And I, I, I had a pass on a helicopter, which was very useful because I lived in New Jersey, and I'd go to Newark Airport and catch the helicopter to the, to the Pan Am building or on the, on the on the riverside to go shopping, catch the helicopter home, or go in for a drink at the Speedbird Club in New York. But I'd landed in Newark because I used to live south of Newark, Newark. Um, and a guy walked up to me and he said, "Are you Fred?" I said, "Yes." He said, "Richard Branson wants to have lunch with you." I said, okay, I'll be back in London in three or four days' time. And oh, no, he said, it's actually tomorrow. I said, how long do you know about this? Oh, we said, for hours, I mean, like, like early this morning. I said, well, if you'd have called me four hours ago, I'd have stayed in London. He said, yeah, he said, but he really does want to have lunch with you tomorrow. I said, yeah, right. So they said, we booked a flight for you overnight and a sleeper to go. So that's, I went straight aboard another plane and flew back to London. I walked in the hotel, they said, Where? didn't you go home last night? I said, yes, I did. And I'm back again because I've got an appointment. So I washed and showered and went to Richard's houseboat in Pimlico and we spent four hours together discussing what he wanted to do with Virgin Atlantic. It was just just after it started and he wanted my ideas. So we, 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 we put on touches like the masseuse on board, the limousine service at each end, the first-class rail ticket in this country, and what other things that they could put on. I spent hours with him on this, and then, because I was still working in a daytime job, I said, I can't work for you officially, uh, or on a, a salary or a contract, but I said, I'll I'll, do, I'll work as, a, as a, a consultant, you pay my expenses. he said, no problem, which I did for about a year, and then, I, then by that time, I severed all relationships with nine-to-five jobs. My job was never nine-to-five because I wasn't travelling so much. But but in the end, that's how I, I joined Virgin Atlantic for a while. And I had a good experience with Richard. I mean, I did all the original inaugural flights
0: with him. Would you say he's been one of the most interesting people you've met? I would say,
1: I would say so. Johnny Cash is one of my, was one of my greatest friends that I first flew with. And I I used to live in Nashville for two two or three years, and of course we used to all fly up to New York to the country stars, yeah. And John I met on a flight. He sat next to me, and he, he was talking. He said, "Fred, he said, I've got to get me to the dentist in the morning." He said, "I said, well, do you want to go out and have a meal tonight? Then I said, I'll take you out to a bloody good place where they do the best best ribeye you've ever short rib you ever had in your life." Okay. So I went home. I got my car. I picked him up at Central Park South, and we went to this little place on Sixty Third and Third. And when I used to go in the door there, they used to go with the finger, an inch or two inches. That was the sickness of the meat. And for for many years after, I used to go there with John, and I knew his wife, June Carter, through him. We met up quite frequently, and was a great great friend, a great guy too, and. And the last time I had any contact with him, I flew down to Nashville, and his wife was sitting opposite me, June. She said, "Fred, can I come on and sit with you all? I said, sure. She said, ah. she said, would you like a message for John? I said, okay. And I had a bottle of wine off Concord. So I wrote on it, Dear JC, I'd love to see you in Hendersonville soon. Don't live in Nashville anymore, so it's a bit difficult, but I will come and see you soon. And I took it, and then I remembered I just gave a, a beautiful bottle of wine to a, a, a reformed alcoholic. That was it. Then then she died, and he died shortly afterwards. I think he was heartbroken, really. He did ask me, he said, My daughter's in London going out with some guy called Rob Lowe. Do you know him? He's some sort of rock and roller. I said, I live in the States, John. I said, I haven't got a clue what goes on in England very much. So, yes, Johnny Cash I met. Who else? I flew with David Frost many, many times and he was kind of interesting but he used to sit right down the back out the way. But we used to have this guy on, a South African guy who owned this private airline down in South Africa and a, a transport company and he used to come with a little fiddle and he used to go down and annoy David and play the fiddle right in front of him. But Muhammad uh, Ali, many times I saw him on the flight. Joan Rivers, yeah, lots and lots of people, but Johnny Richard Branson, I, I, I still, I'm still in contact with him when I need to be. He always answers me if I send him an email. I mean, I, I, I played cricket for him in Santa Monica in a, in a place called C. Aubrey Smith Park, which C. Aubrey Smith was a former England cricket captain in the 1930s, and now he had a park named after him in, in Santa Monica, California, I don't know. But we played against the Los Angeles basketball team. And Pamela Anderson was in, the, in their team. Amazing what was going on. It, it was, amazing things happen once you travel. It's the best education. It's the best thing in life for anybody to learn about the world. And I know you and my experiences. I just did a keynote speech for the, what they call the Crystal Cabin Awards. It's the Oscar of the aviation awards in, in in hamburg and I had 600 people in my audience and I always they always say what was your first flight across the atlantic then I said well it was on a dc4b and it took 19 hours and four stops so we took off at blackbush landed at presswick keflavik bangor main and then Idlewild. and they said is that in connecticut somewhere I said, no, no, you've been... And Tim Clark, who runs Emirates, he said, Fred, where is this Idlewild? I said, you've flown into it many times. He said, no, I haven't. I said, yes, you have. It's called Kennedy today. When I used to stand up in front of these people, I'm talking just like I do to you. I mean, I have a passion about it and I'm just normal, I think, in in my way. But I've experienced that nobody else has and, and things have happened to me that's not happened to anybody else, so I got, I got asked back to do it again.
0: Fred, I don't want to interrupt some of these brilliant stories, but I'm curious, with all these older aircraft that you've flown on, what makes you so trusting of commercial aviation? Well, DC-4B was ancient.
1: I flew on a Constellation, which was a beautiful aeroplane with 47 seats on it, and it had like armchairs. I mean, it looked like a fish with the free tails. I flew on a uh, Boeing seven one seven, which called it, which is a Stratocruiser, a bomber from World War Two, but it had a, it was an unusual aircraft, it a very beautiful aircraft. Airbus adapted it as the f- famous Guppy to fly their parts in before they had the jet to do it. Yeah, now it had a lounge that was downstairs, and it sat about ten people. The guy that wrote the James Bond stories used to love going down there, but they had. What was your upstairs, which, what you, where the luggage rack would be today, was your bed. And you climbed into this bed. And it's the only aircraft I know that you brought your breakfast in bed in the morning. And I've done the Britannia, I did Comet. And I did the, the 720, which was the forerunner to the 707, because it had all the pipes on the outside of the engine, you could always tell it. And I've gone up through, I think, every aircraft. My favourites would be the V C ten was an amazingly beautiful all British aircraft were fine fantastic to fly on. Most of them were not commercially sound, they were viable basically. The perhaps the best one that was most was the Viscount. And they sold a lot of those in America because that was a big old turbo prop and the big old windows out of it. I used to fly it in Africa with it over the game parts and it was amazing.
0: But yes Despite travelling so much. Have you ever been scared? Oh, Christ, yeah.
1: I think this is what worries most people about flying, is they can't see where they're going, and there's all sorts of strange noises going on that they don't understand. I can tell you I've, I've, had a, I've been attempted hijacking, I've had a bomb on board, and I've landed with the wheels up.
0: Excellent. I think the Love Fly podcast listeners are going to uh, love your stories, or maybe not. I'm hoping that there's a happy ending.
1: And on each occasion, I got on the next flight I could as soon as I could.
0: How did you do that?
1: Because if you fall off a horse, you better get back on it, or you'd never ride it again. I landed with the wheels up at Kennedy years and years ago, but I went, I got, I, got, I got out okay, no problem, then I got into the terminal, eventually, and I went up to the first airline desk I saw, and it happened to be SAS, and I said, have you got a seat? Yes, and I got back on a flight that night, and I flew overnight to Copenhagen, and I called my chairman in the morning, because I was going to New York to meet him, and he said, when, when, when will you be here? I said, oh, probably not until tomorrow, I'm in Copenhagen, he said, how do you manage that? And I told him. Now, there is a story about safety in flying. It's, I think it's the most safe, safest way of any transport. If they built cars like they built planes, you'd only need one for 10 generations of your family.
0: I agree, actually.
1: But they reckon when I started flying, when the jets came out, it was about 82 years you could go without having an incident. They reckon it's 100 years now. So there's nothing gonna to happen to me for the next 300 years and everybody wants to have a flight with me because I'm the safest guy in the world to fly with. And yes, I've had my nervous moments, of course you do. When, when I've landed with a crosswind and you can see the runway is sort of level with you, you know. These guys are trained for that. flown enough in the flight deck. On Concourse, for example, I flew probably hundred times in the flight deck because they used to sell off my seat. And they would say, you know, with Mr Guccione, we can't leave him behind Fred, you'll have to sit in the flight deck. Well, probably in most airplanes you think, oh really, but Concorde you could you could you could take it, yeah? But I used to say, Well, I'm gonna sit in the captain's office if he asks his permission. Well, no, I said, Well you better have because he might not want me to fly and sit in a jump seat. And I want my red wine on Concorde, mate, and I said, You're not usually allowed to drink in a flight deck. But they always allowed me that privilege. So I did that and I'd have my headset on and they, you know, everybody wanted to sit in the flight deck on Concorde for landing or takeoff but when I was there they, did, they could say no because I was there and they knew I knew what to do, how to get out the window, how to operate everything around me and I actually talked to one coming the other way. Now that's closing at 46 miles a minute and I said well if this is does When you break the speed of sound going against each other, does it cancel each other out so you can talk? And then they start to get all technical and they lose me because I'm not a technical person. I understand sound is a spe- Sound travels at the speed of light, which I don't know why you, you don't cost a light barrier then, but there's another story. So yes, I've had my fears. But I've, I, I've seen how these guys operate. Now, I've flown with some very strange airlines. Concorde one time. I'm going to do a film for Concord in Singapore and I'm going to fly with my great pal John Hutchinson. And he called me before he said, Oh I said, look, I can't fly with you today, but I'll catch up with you in Bahrain because the clues used to change in Bahrain. And he called me from Bahrain, he said, he says, Well, you didn't fly with me today, Fed. I said, Why is that? He said, They wheeled a the wheelchair passenger on who sat in Ten A behind your seat. during the flight, she took a knife out and stabbed a guy who who would have been you sitting in your seat. And it went within two millimetres of his brain. It didn't kill him, but it screwed him up for most of his life.
0: People love to fly with me. I'm a lucky guy, Paul, you know. I think so. Uh, Maybe you've given people more fear now? But I I do.
1: I like... I just love love it, you know. If I'm not going through an airport or boarding a plane, at least... Once a once a month, at least once a month, even during this pandemic, it's a bit strange
0: so if you had to give a message of hope to the one in five people that are scared of flying, what would you say?
1: I would say to them exactly what I'm saying to you is first off, don't drink beforehand because a lot of people have to drink, and I said there's two chances that you might get you, get you might not even get boarded if you' are too too much drink and I said it can be an enjoyable thing to fly and I'm sure you will overcome your fears now if before you take off ask the crew tell them to take you up to meet the captain and they'll usually do that and you can see what which way you're going and and see the relaxed but professional way that they are. Sit in your seat and tell the guy next to you or the lady next to you listen do you mind if I uh, talk with you because I've never done this before or I'm a little nervous about it and perhaps you can help me and the crew will be wonderful with you they always are they know how to handle this and then they'll explain to you that that if you hear some whirring underneath well that's the, the the flaps going up and down or even if you hear a bang, that's the wheels coming up, not the bottom dropping out, and it's a it's about experience and sharing. I've I've never felt anything. I've never had jet lag ever, and people say you must have. It. It's about your body clock. Like I said I've never had jet lag in my life, and you never got it on Concorde either, because you're only on it for if, no longer than four hours, ever. So if you didn't get it in four hours crossing in the same sign zones, why would you get it at all? And if you sit in an aluminum tube or aluminum tube, wherever you came from, for longer than four hours, I think jet lag is about dehydration. And I set my watch to the time I'm going to, and I try and live on that time. And if I'm going to the States, I go to bed at my right time. And if I was knackered, I'd, I'm, by the time I wake up in the morning, I've had a good sleep and I go to work. I don't get legal rest like the crews. I go there to work and it's it's also for me when I'm people much younger than I travel they just say we, we can't keep up with you." Well, I get home and I get tired about two days afterwards I'm completely bushed. but when I'm traveling, my adrenaline and the fact that I just enjoy it so much and my, my attitude is, do you know there's a lot of people who do a nine to five humdrum job. I would actually like to be where I am, whether it's grotty or not, and that's my philosophy. And uh, now I do this keynote talking. It's about my experiences. As much as we're talking, uh, it thrills me.